Macho what? Man. Hey, where, where is he, this? Where did he come from? He must have been in the building the entire time. He has been suspended. And hey, he came out of the other end of the building. The Macho Man is in the building. Someone's got to get security off the doors here and bring him inside quickly. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Episode 55 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winston. Today, we're taking a look at WCW Saturday Night from May 25th, 1996, right before it was all going to change. And I always enjoyed looking at those time periods, like right before a seminal moment in the promotion's history. Did that episode several weeks ago where Bob Backlund, it was revealed that he had finally lost the WWF title to the Iron Sheik, and seeing how that transition played out, and like, what was going on right before Hulk Hogan got there? Did the WCW Worldwide show from 1994, also right before Hulk Hogan would have got there? This is a little different. This is the last weekend of WCW programming before Scott Hall made his way through the crowd and rudely interrupted that match between the mauler Mike Enos and Steve Dahl, which we never got a proper finish on that. And uh, it's always been a bone of contention for me. But that's really WCW. They just can't even give us the finish for that Enos-Dahl match. But hey, whatever. So I'm back from Toronto, and it was a whirlwind of a trip. There was some airline delay Sunday night coming back from there because our plane had to come from Newark to get us in Toronto to fly us to Boston and there was a lot of rain or whatever so to sit in that little tiny airport uh, Billy Bishop City Airport which if you have the opportunity to fly to Toronto I suggest that you fly in there because it's close enough that you can literally walk to downtown from the airport it's kind of a unique thing of course there's only certain u.s cities you can fly from to that airport i think they fly from chicago midway and newark as i had just mentioned and of course boston there's a handful of others including orlando melbourne which i think is different from the regular orlando airport which that is a little strange so before i get more into that let me just get my plugs out of the way you can email the show greetings from allentown at gmail.com facebook.com slash greetings from allentown i'm gonna be looking to overhaul the whole facebook thing and how i do things there because with my new phone i can actually see facebook a little bit better because i actually have room for the app 
I just didn't have room for stuff on my phone anymore. That's a good enough reason as any to get a new one. Twitter, at GF Allentown Pod. Give me a follow there. And for your Amazon purchases, go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon. You can support the Place to Be Nation that way. Because you're probably listening to this show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed in association with Place to Be Nation. And I don't know if my podcast on the greatest WWE wrestler ballot of Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters is out yet. Still kind of haggling over the release date there. It might be out, it might not, as I record this on Monday morning. And so it'll probably be around the time that this shows. I know I've been talking about it for at least three or four weeks now. And I can assure you, it most certainly exists. Like Al Gore on Man Bear Pig from South Park. Yes, it most certainly does exist. I am super serial. Anyway, back to Toronto there. So it was it was nice going to the hockey game up there. It was quite a bit of fun. I, I like the fact that e- even though I paid through the nose for tickets, I had access to this thing, the Air Canada Center, called the Air Canada Club, where we had to go through this little gate, and they let us in 45 minutes before the regular gates open. And we get up there, and like, okay, you can sit at the bar. All the seats are reserved. There, there were bar seats reserved, so like we had a very slim choice, but we were one of the first people there. So we take two seats at the bar, like, my friend Merrill, he's like, hey, you want to put your coat in my bag? I'm like, sure. So I take my coat off, and for some reason, I cut my thumb on the zipper to the point where I have to grab, like, a bunch of bar napkins and, like, use it like a tourniquet around my thumb. <laughs> so so completely ridiculous. I'm, like, in, like, this hoity-toity club where they charge $24 Canadian for Manhattans. And, oh, by the way, you can see Knob Creek behind the bar but they're not using that in their manhattans and i don't endorse knob creek for mixers but if you're paying that much you should get a better bourbon no they're using canadian club for their bourbons so strike one to them there was a rather exciting game uh you may have seen on the twitter i posted a little bit about it and how uh you know for for those of you who don't follow hockey the nhl doesn't always book clean finishes either a lot of, lot of goaltender interference, dusty finishes, offside reviews. I mean, you'd be surprised at how much hockey and wrestling have in common at the end of the day. <laughs> Just kind of funny. I, I, I don't know. It's, it, it was a tough loss. All I can say, though, is that I, I'm glad I did not do my envi- originally envisioned trip, which would have seen me go to Buffalo on Sunday, where the Bruins lost 4-1 to to the Buffalo Sabres. So... Just just glad I didn't do that and spend any more money. I took way too much Canadian money out of the ATM in Toronto. So now I'm stuck with like $150 Canadian money. So I'll make my way back there probably in the fall and spend that money somehow. I don't know where I'll go or what I'll do or if there'll be another episode of Maple Leaf Wrestling out there for me to do. I certainly hope that there are more Angelo Mosca episodes. I think I think I have some in the strategic reserve. And I got a lot of good feedback on last week's episode of Maple Leaf Wrestling. Almost turned into like an Angelo Mosca tribute show along with a lengthy section talking about the 84 Canada Cup. And the positive feedback meant a lot to me because it was coming from people from Canada 
who were kids during that 1984 period. So uh, glad that show turned out pretty well. It was one of my favorite ones that I have done, actually. Now, to spin it on a dime to WCW Saturday Night from 1996. I, I know I had said a 96 or a 97 show last week and how there was five minutes of the screen just going black on the one that I had originally chosen. And I did not watch much in the way of wrestling the last couple of weeks because of the Olympics. I'm, I'm one of those people who sits and just watches it and I feel obligated because like, I'm not going to get bobsled back for four years, so I have to sit here and watch these bobsleds do the exact same thing like 50 times in a row where just the same course and all that. I don't know why. So I have not watched as much wrestling TV of late. So this show, I actually watched it from my iPod Touch on the plane, and I had some issues hearing the play-by-play of Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes, who are the hosts of this episode of WCW Saturday Night, one-hour edition, of course, as is my usual standard. And I, ha- yeah, I had issues actually hearing them because the seat that I'm given on the plane is right near, like, the turbo props and all that, and while those planes are supposed to be quieter now than the turbo props of old, <laughs> I still had a little bit of an issue hearing what they were saying, but I have some complaints about Tony and Dusty on this show, and they might be some of the same things that you've heard about Tony Schiavone in the past, some complaints about his later work that are showing up here in May of 1996. But for all that, WCW seemed to at least be trending up despite all of its flaws. It was trending up early in 1996, and it couldn't help but do that because of how hot Nitro was in the beginning. This is the end of the one-hour Nitro era, which there's a lot of crap on those shows. There's Hogan wearing black, Hogan on the dark side, the stuff leading up to the alliance to end Hulkamania at Uncensored with that cockamamie cage match with about 1,800 people facing Hogan, Savage, and Beefcake for some reason. (laughs) It's just so magnificent. Those one-hour Raw, uh, one-hour Raws, one-hour Nitros, Those are so easy to go back and watch because even if it sucks, 40 minutes later it's over and you can just move on to the next one. Fortunately, as I said, I didn't really get a chance to watch too much of it recently, but there's plenty enough on this show going on to kind of get a feel for the product at this time. The, The NWO starting up a little bit after this certainly was lifting the tide, so to speak, but as we all know, years later, because they had no idea how to end the New World Order, it ended up sinking the whole thing or being one of the strong contributing factors to that. You had the Ric Flair-Randy Savage program, which on paper, say, well, they did that in the WWF, and it's kind of a natural thing to compare the Savage-Flair issue of 1995 and 96 to the one from 1992 in terms of which one do you like better which one got pulled off better and for all that that 
program actually drove some business in WCW, and that was something that was really not happening <laughs> for that promotion for much of the 1990s. So a lot of the credit for the turnaround of WCW at the very beginning of that trending upward that I was talking about should go to that program. But this being WCW, there's never a point where everything can be rosy. They're building to the Great American Bash in June. And it feels like a million miles away, given what would happen on that show with Eric Bischoff getting powerbombed off the stage by Kevin Nash and Scott Hall is standing there as well. Like Those two guys aren't even there as we do this show on May 25th. And Slamboree 96 was another one of those specialty WCW pay-per-views where they did the Battle Bowl tournament. Of so, this is I alluded to this last week with the tag match of Nikolai Volkov and Big John Studd versus SD Jones and Samula, and how it kind of seemed like a battle bowl match, how random those pairings were. And they did on that Slamboree show what seemed like a million tag matches, including ones where, oh, the Steiner brothers are facing off against each other, the Road Warriors are on opposite teams. We're going to play up the potential split of the Blue Bloods, Dave Taylor and Steve Regal. When you have that many tag matches on a show, it just becomes boring, and they seem to be driving home the same point. Like, all right, we get it. Animal and Hawk will meet for the first time. Okay, Rick and Scott are going to duke it out. That's fine, all right? Yeah, we saw that at the 89 Royal Rumble with Axe and Smash, and it was a lot of fun, but could you not do it, like, multiple times on the same show? WCW sometimes never understood the concept of there can be too much of a good thing. You know, I like pizza, but if I sit there and eat two of them, I'm I'm not I'm not going to feel well in the morning about myself or my stomach, honestly. But overall, the promotion is fairly watchable at this time despite, you know, Battle Ball and all that. And that's part of the reason why the NWO happening when it did. It's not just Hulk Hogan being a part of it, and that that certainly was an integral part, and just the brilliance of the angle itself, which sometimes might get forgotten because of how it all led to the demise of WCW. But the promotion was trending up, so it was the right time to have a hot angle like that. You add it all together, and you get the great run of business that would carry them through the next couple of years so that's where wcw is around this time they're in a pretty good spot in fact maybe because we just had the trade deadline for the nba and the nhl and that's why this is on the mind wcw kind of like a sports franchise that as i said things are going good but maybe they just need that one extra or two extra pieces in the case of holland nash to really put them over the top and it most certainly did for 83 84 weeks defeating raw in the ratings until it ended up backfiring down the road because they just didn't know when to walk away on this show tonight is a guy who certainly knows when to walk away the patron saint the old Letters from Center Stage podcast. The Gambler is in action against the Booty Man. That is something that would attract me to this show immediately. And we see the Steiner Brothers in action, kicking it off against the American Males. This is not really a jobber-heavy 
kind of show. It's only like four matches, something like that. Harlem Heat taking on Men at Work. So, yeah, Men at Work might have never won very many matches, but at least you know who the guys are. So long as you know which version of Men at Work it is and if it's not the band from Australia. And the feature bout here is something that would be on pay-per-view not long after this is Sting taking on Lord Stephen Regal as well on this one-hour edition of WCW Saturday Night. And why is it one hour? Well, you know why. Hit it. The defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves were in Pittsburgh on that night at Three Rivers Stadium. Record of 31 and 16. They had just taken over first place for good in the National League East shortly before this. And we're cruising to yet another division title and a berth in the World Series. And I'm not entirely sure what happened in the 96 World Series, so let's not talk about that. They lost to the Pirates on this night. It was a particularly interesting game, not because it was played in a mere two hours and 20 minutes. Imagine that, a Major League Baseball game played in under two and a half hours. But the pitching matchup is even more interesting as Denny Nagel of the Pirates outdueled Steve Avery in what turned out to be a 6-2 win for the Pirates at Three Rivers on that evening. And it's interesting because this is around the point where Steve Avery, who was a very promising young pitcher for the Braves from 92 all the way up through really this time in 1996. And I believe he got hurt right at the end of May because he missed a little time and was never the same. In fact, at the end of the season, he leaves as a free agent, signs with the Boston Red Sox and has a couple of middling to bad years up at Fenway. But it's interesting because Denny Nagel, the Pirates, he was the ace of kind of a moribund Pittsburgh team. They're in the fourth season of their dark ages that would last right up into the 2010s. He would actually be traded for by the Braves later that summer to fill the void created by Steve Avery going downhill. Kind of interesting. And he ended up winning 20 games for the Braves the following season. And in this game, Jeff Blauser went deep for the Atlanta Braves. There's no name that evokes Atlanta Braves baseball on TBS quite like Jeff Blauser. Uh, yeah, you can have Terry Pendleton and Dave Justice and all those other big names, but Jeff Blauser just, just screams Atlanta Braves baseball. Even more than Chipper Jones, who struck out looking by D- Danny Nagel in the seventh inning with the bases loaded. That was the key play in that game, a couple of RBI doubles by Jay Bell and the immortal former Red Sox great, although not at that time because he wouldn't arrive till 98, Midre Cummings. The Pirates win that one to go to 19-29 and 29 on the year, and they would finish at 73-89, and 89, which was actually one of their better seasons during that dark age period. So, enough baseball, but... Before we get into the show here, just a word to one of my podcasting pals out there, Mr. Mike Crockett of the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing, who is on an extended hiatus from officiating. However, now we know why he was on that extended hiatus. We now know what he was doing. 
And I have to congratulate him for it in a way only Apu Nahasapima Petalon could. I've just heard about the little bundle of joy. Congratulations, sir. It's true. The bundle is little, but I'm not in it for the money. Hey, if you're going to take an extended hiatus from wrestling, that's about as good a thing as you could possibly doing. And I wish him and his wife nothing but the best going forward. And I hope that their first child be a masculine child. All right, so before I start just playing random clips from various mafia movies, might as well just jump right into the show. I've spoken out against the hot take culture on this show in the past, but I'm just going to share something about Hootie and the Blowfish and what was probably the worst hot take I've ever heard in my life. I probably shouldn't say the person's name. I'll, I'll protect their identity a little bit. Let's just call him, oh, I don't know, Funny Dave. And Funny Dave turned to me at one point in, I believe it had to have been 1996, because this is when this was out, and earnestly said to me, and he was serious, I believe that Fairweather Johnson by Hootie and the Blowfish will be a, is a better album than Cracked Rearview. And he actually meant that, so... Only only had about uh, maybe 15% of the album sales of Crack Rearview, which caught America by storm. That was actually the one good song from Fairweather Johnson, Old Man and Me. But Darius Rucker's had a very good music career. Made enough money to, I believe, buy uh, 400 of Ric Flair's robes. Every time he comes up, like every time there's like a question about Ric Flair's robes or something, Conrad Thompson will be like... Yeah, I believe Darius Rucker has that, so chat me up on that. Speaking of good old Conrad, this show was actually taped in his home state of Alabama in Montgomery, drawing 2,085, according to the history of WWE.com, but only 1,300 of those paid. So we start our show actually with a clip from the previous Nitro, and Gene Oakland is really giving it to Randy Savage. There are police in the background as they're having their conversation and Gene is saying that you're going to be suspended you're going to be fined and you know basically giving him all sorts of what for and Savage is you know they're listening and he he doesn't really care Oakland referred to the fines given to Albert Bell, Dennis Rodman and Magic Johnson and one of those doesn't seem like the others when I mean Albert Bell is the guy who tried to run down kids who were trick-or-treating at his place, and Dennis Rodman's stuff is well-publicized over time. But Magic Johnson's fine for that time in 1996 may have been forgotten, but I remember this very, very well, is he bumped an official during a game and was fined $10,000 and suspended for three games. Yes, the Magic Johnson comeback in the spring of 1996 he, they actually had the balls to suspend him three games for that. And it was because the NBA, a lot of players were bumping officials that season. Uh, for whatever for whatever reason, it was like just one in a long string of it. And I think Magic got three games because he had actually specifically criticized other guys for it. So his hypocrisy was glaring. And Oakland says that, those fines will pale into compar- in comparison to what the WCW Executive Committee 
will find Savage for all of his recent actions, which had to be somewhat justified. You know, he's got Ric Flair taunting him and torturing him by having Liz around him, his ex-woman around all the time, doing stuff with Savage's money, which he was also doing as part of this angle. But more recently at Slamboree, Flair had attacked Savage. See, they were supposed to be on the same team. Like I said, they kept doing the damn tag partners have tensions thing. And you do it so many times on a show, it just loses all meaning. And this this is the main one here. So Savage has got his lecture. We're setting that up because that's going to be the main story of this episode of WCW Saturday Night. And we have our hosts, Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes. And they allude to a Savage versus the Barbarian match, which that feels like a natural thing. A Savage should fight a Barbarian. I feel like they would be natural rivals here. And, you know, I could have played the audio of Gene talking to Savage or whatever, but... There is only one man who can properly kick off this Greetings from Allentown review of this show, and that is the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Well, Tony, when we drove up here for WCW Saturday night, I thought the President of the United States was there. I have never seen so much security, extra being blocked, people running around and scurrying like rats in my trying to keep the macho man Randy Savage from being on WCW Okay, first of all, I don't know how safe it is that they're blocking the exits of the building. I feel like that's in violation of every fire code anywhere you might go. And secondly, Dusty talking about the President of the United States is kind of funny because according to the new breed reality, he would be President six years from this point in 2002. Tony lets us know that Diamond Dallas Page won Battle Bowl, but eh, that didn't really amount to anything. He just got a ring and kind of a screwy finish there saying, oh, he had a foot on the floor, and it was an upset win for DDP, but he doesn't end up getting the title shot at the Great American Bash. So I have some thoughts on that coming up later in the show, but let's get to our opening contest here, which is the American Males taking on the Steiner brothers in a matchup that seems like a all-babyface one. And the American males come into the ring, Scotty Riggs and Marcus Alexander Bagwell, three-time WCW Rookie of the Year, if memory serves correctly. They're doing the clap over the head thing, kind of like what Too Cool would do later on, or that weird skull thing that the Minnesota Vikings fans were doing during the playoffs and I, I guess even before that it there's there's an even more interesting thing than their gyrations there it's there's a lot of interesting crowd shots on this show and I don't know if it's Alabama or if it's just the time of when this was or, or whatever there's a woman in the crowd and I've got to make a gift file out of this who has like her little kid in her arms and just grabs the kid's right arm and is just waving it back and forth and the kid is like looking in the complete opposite direction he wants no part of this he's very much not impressed with the promotion at this time i might even make that a show image even though that's not he has any doesn't have anything to do with this but Anyway, th- there's another guy in the crowd who's wearing an absolute vodka hat, which is another, sounds like another thing from the 90s. It's not exactly my brand of vodka. It would be maybe in my top 
top 35 vodkas, I'd say. I thought the center stage crowds were a little kooky, but this, this one down in Alabama, a lot of laughs there. The Steiners, and I don't know if they're playing de facto heels here. They went against each other because that was the whole theme of Slamboree, and you had Scott and Rick on opposite sides with Rick's team emerging victorious there. And it doesn't seem like they're teasing a split between the two of them, although you do have to wonder how Scott Steiner's career might have turned out had he been a single wrestler for a longer period of time and also how it might have gone for Rick would things have changed a little bit for him because when the split did happen in 98 the only real kind of moment of glory for Rick after that point was during that odd bully phase in 1999 when everything was just completely unwatchable and so was he but at that time in 1996 the Steiners they had just come back in and Scott is still pretty quick here. He's definitely put on a lot of muscle, but he can still move around. And you, you see that early on, but he gets caught with a drop kick by Scotty Riggs. And then Riggs immediately makes a mistake, a cardinal mistake by a ring veteran, putting his head down. And Scott scores with a forearm there and then hooks in the double underhook suplex and that's another thing is scott steiner and the whole you know suplex city is brock lesnar's thing but the steiners with the way they would just toss guys around with suplexes i feel like it's at the very least a suplex township a suplex plantation something something to that effect but riggs gets the tag to bagwell and they do the exchange where rick is now in the ring opposite the three-time rookie of the year and Bagwell gets a little bit of an edge but his suplex is blocked and as Rick tries for a vertical suplex Bagwell ends up slithering out of it and scores with a drop kick so nice little bit of offense early on for the American males Bagwell goes up top though and lands a big splash so kind of like a superfly splash and you won't believe what happens rick steiner kicks out on a one count which when i saw this i was like oh what was the point of that and this is where i have to go on my little jag and i promise it won't be too long about the dangers of move inflation okay i'm not saying that I'm going to go and make buttons like President Ford did in 1975, those those, uh, win buttons, whip inflation now, where he encouraged Americans to band together to fight the scourge of double-digit inflation. That's that's monetary policy. That's a different thing. Move inflation, and I was talking about this 20 years ago, where I was specifically focused on pile drivers and how you couldn't beat anybody with a pile driver anymore in 1996 or 97. And how when stuff becomes devalued over time, the bar gets raised each and every time. And there there has to be a stopping point there. You have to kind of manage things as we go along because there's only so many moves you can do. And I think that the business certainly got hurt by almost kind of like a rage of move inflation in the late 90s. And it, it you know, it takes a long time to come out of that. So, you know, just saying, be cautious out there. Let, let's be careful out there. Hey. 
Let's be careful on it. It's actually very sound advice going up against the Steiners. Two guys not exactly known for uh, taking care of their opponents, if you catch my drift. Bagwell comes off the top for a second time, but actually gets caught, and it's an overhead belly-to-belly -belly suplex. So it's just throwing them around, you know, no, no big deal. It's WCW Saturday night. We're on to Mothership here. Forearm, and that was probably stiff as well I'm, I'm only watching on a little screen here I, I watched this show mostly on an airplane so I didn't get to hear Dusty and Tony quite as well on commentary here but the tag to Scott and I most certainly heard this as Tony reminds us that Monday Nitro will be going to two hours on Monday and I wish them nothing but the best I hope they have something big planned for the first two hour Nitro now, Dusty, he, <laughs> he's always got to go a little bit over the top. Live show every Monday. It's the biggest thing in televised sports. It's the biggest thing to happen in televised sports. Two hour live on Monday, WCW Monday Nitro. And we'll be telling you all about it right here on the mothership. Well, shit, who needs the Super Bowl when you have Mike Enos versus Scott Dahl? I mean, am I right? Such hyperbole, I think, with Dusty working with Tony Schiavone would seep into Tony's brain, which is how you would get the greatest match or the biggest match in the history of our sport and all the stuff that you would hear through 1997. Scott charges into the corner, but Bagwell gets his foot up on him and eventually tags out to Scotty Riggs, and they get team up for a double back elbow, which gets a two count. So we have our first two count on the Steiners for this match, and Scott just clotheslines Riggs there. And I must say, this is a fun little spot because after the Scott clothesline, he gets clotheslined by Bagwell, and then Rick clotheslines Bagwell and I was waiting for Riggs to somehow emerge out of nowhere and then clothesline Rick and the circle of life would be complete but unfortunately that did not happen because this thing is action packed right here we got clotheslines everywhere and bodies all over the place Ooh, doggy doggy pound the thing that makes me the saddest about Dusty Rhodes joining the NWO in January of 1998 was we lost him on commentary so I always say that how I can't watch WCW after a certain point, and I think part of it is that we lose those kind of quips from the dream on commentary. Did they always make sense? No, but they were entertaining for the most part. By the way, quick aside, I made the mistake of actually watching a clip from Nitro from 2000 earlier today, and I was so depressed, I, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to record any of the podcast tonight, but... Here I am, I'm powering through it, and we get to the finish here, and Scotty Riggs is showing his medal here, taking a Frankensteiner as well as anybody could possibly do it. I should probably make a gift file of that too, because you can see all the bloopers of Steiner doing the Frankensteiner, and it doesn't look good at all, with Mike Enos being one of the guys who could take it very well, but apparently Scotty Riggs says, uh, I, I'm now a contender to the Mike Enos throne, and this match ends on that, one, two, three, a fun little TV match between these two teams. It's a little strange seeing two ostensibly 
babyface teams going at it in our opener here but it did make me think about what if we had a heel steiner tag team during this time frame obviously the two of them would be heels later on long after anybody stopped caring i feel like at 96 it would have been somewhat fresh where you make them these monsters and they throw guys around and eventually down the road you'd probably have to turn them back babyface because people would remember why they like the steiners so much so just kind of a thought but of course something's about to happen in the promotion that's really gonna change things and put a lot of other stuff on hold so that idea is just gonna have to stay out there as one of those what ifs promotional consideration paid for by the following Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of the Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Hey, 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 Mr. Mr. NFL, Mr. Super Bowl. You know what? I am Ric Flair. This is the Enforcer. We're wrestlers. And if you want to get one of your old-time teammates, Richard Dent, Randy White, you want to get Jim McMahon, Brad Muster, get one of your old-time teammates. Get anybody. Walk down the aisle. Jump on. Oh, there's the a challenge. Enforcer. There's a challenge there. Ooh, and the nature boy. And so that was the challenge of Ric Flair alongside Arn Anderson towards Steve Mongo McMichael, who had just been an announcer on Nitro from the very first one back in September. And he's not as bad. And rewatching those nitros, or at least the ones that I've been able to see since I got the network four years ago, he's not as bad as I remembered. Yeah, the dog thing is a little bit weird. I don't know why he has a little dog with him at all times. That that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But his it, there's definitely been worse for color commentators. Would I have chosen somebody else? Probably, but if you're going to make a mainstream splash, you know, there were various ways you could do it, and you have this guy from the 1985 Bears, one of the most legendary teams in pro football history. I don't know who they beat in the Super Bowl. I'll have to look that up sometime. So the challenge is, you why don't you get one of your old-time teammates? And he runs through the list, and they're all names you really know, but then he gets to Brad Muster. It's like, oh, Brad Muster. Like, why would Ric Flair name Brad Muster as one of the people from those old Bears teams? Well, as it turns out, Brad Muster, huge Ric Flair fan, and the legend goes that he would wear a Ric Flair shirt underneath all his football equipment during his playing career. <laughs> And he was in the crowd at the 1989 Chi-Town Rumble when Flair lost the world title to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So, kind of interesting that he just kind of name-dropped it, probably because it was one of the guys that he knew, you know, from way back. Instead, Mongo 
pulls a fast one here, and he doesn't go to anybody who was on Lawrence Taylor's all-pro team alongside him. Instead, he goes and gets an actual active all-pro in Kevin Green, who had just signed with the Carolina Panthers after a three-year stint with the Pittsburgh Steelers, a pretty successful three-year stint where he was first-team All-Pro in 1994, and he would make first-team All-Pro in 96, leading the Panthers to the NFC Championship game in only their second season of existence. So this guy was a pretty legit player, and for all that's said about bringing in football players and whatnot, he had a pretty good idea of how to be a professional wrestler and there's no doubt in my mind that if he had decided to let's say retire in 1995 and become a professional wrestler that he almost certainly could have done it and he lasted in the NFL up through 1999 and retired as the third leading player in sacks in NFL history now an asterisk for that is that they only started counting sacks as an official stat in 1982 so all the names you see there are guys from the last 35 years so Bruce Smith is actually the all-time leader I mean he ended up with more sacks Kevin Green did than Lawrence Taylor which seems kind of weird you wouldn't you would think that Lawrence Taylor would have had more than him but Kevin Green was truly an outstanding football player and Ric Flair certainly did not like that Mongo chose an active star here. I've got my first round draft choice here tonight. Who you got out there, Lawrence Taylor? I want to bring him out and show him to you right now. Mr. Kevin Green. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Kevin Green, former All-Pro. He was in the Super Bowl last night. I said retired players. You never You're said retired. You You're not winning. Let's go. Kevin Green of the Carolina Panthers. Just putting myself in the moment in 1996, the way they played out the angle there with McMichael and Flair certainly seemed to be somewhat unexpected but inspired at the same time. McMichael turning on Kevin Green to join the Four Horsemen with the promise of great riches and all that. The McMichael thing as a horseman is something that actually over time makes more and more sense to me it kind of really hit me the most when flair on one of his podcasts several years ago he had mcmichael on as a guest and you could tell that the nature boy really really liked mcmichael and would like to have him as a running buddy i mean it certainly doesn't hurt to have a guy that big who's a former NFL lineman there when you're working that Marriott bar when you're working that circuit you know maybe have as a bit of your muscle you know Arn is getting up there in years and if you have Mongo there to kind of you know keep a little order that certainly doesn't hurt and Mongo was certainly down for craziness himself and as for Kevin Green he would actually put his differences with Flair aside the following year. He'd team up with Flair and Piper to take on members of the NWO, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Six. And then he would return the year after in 1998 to team with Goldberg. So a lot of high-profile spots for Kevin Green over time. It seems like he would only appear 
during that heart of the off season in around May or June when nobody is really thinking about the NFL, even in today's world where you know the NFL seems like it's a 365 day a year sport. In May and June, if you're thinking about the NFL at that point, you really just seek some help. You got to you got to take a rest from things, even if you enjoy it quite a bit. Hulk Hogan is more than just the greatest champion in history. He's one of the most popular and recognized athletes in the world. In what seems like a bizarre interlude here for about four minutes, we get a Hulk Hogan sort of tribute video that plays he hadn't even been seen on tv for over a month at this point i believe his last match was in mid-april on nitro and he takes off to go film a movie which is nicely timed with the nba playoffs it kind of causing havoc with nitro in the schedule there so you can see that they only went to two hours after tnt's commitments for the NBA playoffs was over and this little vignette here it kind of just is showing Hogan with a variety of celebrities over time training with George Foreman with Shaq at the Bash at the Beach Dennis Rodman at Bash at the Beach the year before this which is interesting to see Dennis Rodman just portraying like a celebrity baby face there you know shaking hands with the fans it seems like the the 97 Rodman who was in the NWO was the most natural fit out of all of his appearances and last place would be the 98 one where he basically was so ripped out of his skull he couldn't even perform and Kevin Green who was there with Savage and Hogan at the clash right before Super Bowl 30 which Green's Pittsburgh Steelers lost to the Dallas Cowboys and also Sugar Ray Leonard as well and I have to admit I don't really get Sugar Ray Leonard's popularity he always struck me as kind of a puss, and I I know I'm not alone in that, and I know it's a little weird for me to be calling this great boxing champion a puss, but I'm I'm sorry, okay? I'm from the Boston area, and I'm still pissed about the Marvin Hagler fight, which Hagler deserved the decision, in my opinion. That, you know, you can disagree with me all you want. I think it's completely ridiculous that one judge had it 118 to 110 for Leonard. And then Leonard won't give Hagler a rematch afterwards. And then when Hagler retires, Leonard, who had retired rather than give the rematch, decided to come back out of retirement after Hagler was safely retired. So. Quite frankly, Sugar Ray Leonard can kiss my ass, and I'm glad that his fight with Donnie Lalonde in 1988 bombed for Titan Sports because it was kind of annoying that all those promos were all over the SummerSlam 88 telecast. But Hogan's hanging out with him. You know, Hulkamania is running wild in the WCW. (laughs) And, you know, it did make his contract somewhat worthwhile the exposure of the wcw top star with these celebrities was something that was going to help them they were never going to become the top wrestling company even if it was for the brief fleeting period without signing hulk hogan it just wasn't going to work but again like all things wcw they just didn't know when to walk away from hulk 
yeah, you got the bump by turning him heel. He goes into the NWO, and that really drives business. But then there comes a point where he becomes a little bit more trouble than he's worth. And you think back to that period in January of 1998 when he's supposedly playing off alleged interest by the WWF in him and how he could have made that jump, but WCW ponied up to keep him for another couple of years. And you have to ask yourself, why? Because, I don't know, I, they must have just seen the last few years kind of like in sports, the mistake of paying for past performance when Hogan is in his mid-40s at that point and was not moving around nearly as well. And when you think of all the stuff that happened after the Sting series between Starcade and Super Brawl 8, there's not a lot of great Hogan stuff after that point. But here in 96, you know, this, this vignette here is pretty hilarious just sort of appearing out of nowhere and when you see a vignette like this for a guy I think we've learned now as wrestling fans as a community if you see a baby face being lauded in this manner you know the sound the alarm he'll turn incoming here but we would we did not know that net then necessarily sure there are some smart people out there that might have known that but I wouldn't have been one of them. He has starred in many motion pictures, including Mr. Nanny and Suburban Commando. Whoa, 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 whoa. I guess I should understand that they would not mention No Holds Barred because he goes through the whole movie as the World Wrestling Federation champion. You'd think, okay, maybe Rocky Three. But that was 14 years earlier, but that was really his first star turn as Thunderlips in that movie. Thunderlips is here, in the flesh, baby. <laughs> oh my God. The ultimate male versus the ultimate meatball. <laughs> but yeah, I, I understand maybe, you know, not naming the movie from 14 years earlier, but did you really have to lead with Mr. Nanny? I mean... Why would you name that first over Suburban Commando? I've never even seen Suburban Commando, but why would you put Mr. Nanny first in trying to promote this guy? Are they literally trying to turn him heel with this vignette? <laughs> I don't get it. That's the name of the game. Well, hey, I certainly cannot say that this is the most confused I ever was watching a WCW show. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show. Play Simulations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event, Lucha Afterground, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. 
The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Now you have the Booty Man, along with the Booty Babe, Kimberly Page, taking on the Gambler in as much of a 1996 WCW match as you could possibly hope for. Booty Man, I don't even know which number gimmick this was in WCW. Just quickly doing the math in my head, I think it's five. I think you go from Brother Brutide to the Butcher to the Zodiac to the Man with No Name or the Man with No Face. Were they two separate things? I don't know. I feel like I'll get a headache looking up Ed Leslie gimmicks. So I'm just going to ask other questions that I had when in just watching him interacting with the booty babe wondering do you think those two did it do you, do you think that they had sex i don't know why i'm thinking of this but i think it has something to do with the fact that kimberly page is really undeniably hot at this point in time uh it can't be denied and i <laughs> i usually will not point this sort of stuff out but holy crap She's so attractive, it makes me forget about the fact that she's completely untalented at all aspects of pro wrestling. In case you're wondering just how important having a friendship with Hulk Hogan is toward, you know, getting wins in WCW, Ed Leslie's record as the Booty Man in 1996, and this is cage match, so it's really just a sampling. It's, you know, probably not all of his matches in the course of the year, but 31-3. and three. So... Out of 34 matches listed, he won 31 of them. So, hey, you know, <laughs> whatever. We get the gambler here. He, he's he got the cards there, and it shows a royal flush. But unfortunately, at the video poker machine, he was not playing max coins, so he did not get all the winnings that he could have. That gambler gimmick is pretty ingenious because they usually don't let a guy at that level have any sort of personality usually it's just 
This is Mark Starr, although we're going to see Mark Starr in a little bit in Men at Work, but it'll just be the guy's name. He's not allowed to flash cards or whatever. Years before, all it was was Barry Horowitz is going to... He's the guy who pats himself on the back. That is the thing that he does, unless you want to count the fact that he inexplicably wore suspenders as well, that he would just take off. Or Lombardi was the Brooklyn brawler, which... You know, he got that gimmick and was starting to maybe get a push and then just kind of reverted back to type. But the gambler thing is always a great source of entertainment through WCW Saturday Night, The Pro. You don't see him on Nitro, literally ever. I looked for a Nitro match and it just isn't there. At some point, I'm going to look up and find a TV show where he actually emerged victorious. I believe he got a win over Dave Taylor in 1999. Unfortunately, that would mean I would have to watch 1999 WCW, so that's not going to happen. But there's also a win over Chad Brock somewhere along the line. So the gambler was not a complete zero. He's a one-time USWA tag champion alongside Brickhouse Brown. Although I do think that 60% of the audience of this podcast uh, once was half of the USWA tag champions and just looking at that title history there and this match is so fast we don't get the full showcase of all the gamblers talents here and believe it or not there are people who will speak up for him and I'm talking people outside the letters from center stage podcast I'm talking about one Chris Jericho who in his book, A Lion's Tale, there was a point in his career that he was feeling low and he had a match against the gambler and was kind of looking askance at him and wondering, oh God, is this my rock bottom here? So let, let me just read the little bit from Jericho's book. His actual gimmick was of a Maverick-style riverboat gambler. It was a horrible feeling knowing my future was in the hands of a man who did card tricks on his way to the ring. I didn't know if he was good or if he sucked, but my self-esteem was at such a low that I was going to leave the match up to him. I was gambling on the gambler. Having confidence is a huge part of being successful. When you have it, you can do no wrong. When you don't, all you can do is wrong. At that point, all of my previous accomplishments didn't mean a damn thing. This was my last chance. The gambler led the match, and I followed him. He was a meat-and-potatoes wrestler, so it was nothing fancy, but it was exactly what I needed. It was the type of basic match that I would have had in wrestling camp. No bells or whistles, just a good, sorry, and solid execution. Lo and behold, we had a good little match, and within five minutes, I had regained my confidence. Once again, became Chris Jericho, world beater. So, when you watch that Kenny Omega Chris Jericho match from earlier this year at Wrestle Kingdom, please know that the path to that match started with a bout against the Gambler. Booty Man, he he catches the foot of the Gambler very early on and scores with an atomic drop. It's nice to see an atomic drop in 1996. You you don't really see too much of them after that point. And the Gambler bails. He kind of puts his head through the ropes to take a bit of a powder there and he does get a little measure of control and sends the booty man face first to the buckle and I was like because <gasps> well, we all know Ed Leslie's face but his face actually survived it so apparently it's not quite so brittle as it was in 1993 get a corner to corner whip though but the SD Jones memorial charge by the gambler who I 
think carries on the lineage, the legacy of SD Jones on the other side of the world in WCW. He is their SD Jones. And three high knees are what finishes this match. And yes, high knee, ha ha ha. He's the booty man who apparently got that name because of Ed Leslie's interesting attire. And Hogan looked at him one day and said, oh, look at, look at the booty on you. Now, I'm not going to explore what he might have meant by that. I'm not going to go down that road because I know Hogan is very litigious. So I'll leave that up to your imagination. And that picks up the win for him. And, <laughs> and the booty babe and the booty man do the bump, the 1970s dance in the ring there. So very nice. No freak spank, though, because Norman Smiley isn't here to bring that to World Championship Wrestling. But again... I, I do wish that this had been a little bit more of a showcase for the gambler, but he is a guy who knows when to fold them. In the bumper leading into the commercial... You do kind of a odd thing, or at least optically it looks a little weird. They show the Steiners beating the crap out of Abdullah the Butcher for some reason, and then they show them beating up Mick Foley for a rather extended period of time. And I thought, hmm, does that have anything to do with the fact that Mick Foley is in the WWF at that time and is feuding with The Undertaker? No, apparently not. It has much more to do with the fact that Mick Foley just happened to be in litigation with WCW about the loss of his ear at the time for unsafe working conditions. So that they were being so... Imagine, WCW was being petty about something involving Mick Foley. Luckily, they wouldn't make that mistake ever again. But this did come up in the Wrestling Observer newsletter. And I know that last week I had said... I think my exact quote was, fuck the Wrestling Observer newsletter, because I was very upset about how they ripped on Angelo Mosca back in the day. And I, I, just want, I just want to say, I'm terribly sorry for saying those things. Oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Meltzer. Please, Uncle Dave, take me back. Take me back. I'll send, I'll send you a gift certificate to Benihana. We'll, we'll go have Japanese food. They'll do the little... Do the little volcano trick. We'll bond. We'll bond. Yeah. Anyway, so in the Observer, we're talking about these little segments here, and Dave points out that it has more to do with the lawsuit with WCW and the pettiness of it all. But Dave goes into the whole, the show is only an hour long here, and why are they wasting time here instead of doing a vignette on Rey Mysterio Jr. or doing house show or what i wish is there's no promos on this there's no forget local promos i i just wish that somebody was cutting a promo on this show and i kind of realized it after the fact but yeah big dave uh, isn't a fan of them wasting time but yet i i noticed he never had an extended seven minute rant about how fucking stupid the desperados ones were so hey maybe that's my thing but uh yeah 
we'll, we'll go out we'll go out for Japanese food at some point and then we get another vignette which is you you thought the gambler versus booty man was 1996 WCW oh I spoke too soon this is the blood runs cold glacier vignettes which had just started first one aired on May the 6th and these things would last for quite a long time I mean, you would see the vignettes at the Bash of the Beach pay-per-view, or at least the Nitro after Bash of the Beach. So that's July. You would see another one at Hog Wild in August, and another one at Clash of the Champions 33 later that month. And you finally see him in action. He's at the WCW Pro taping, taking on Big Bubba, which looked to be Glacier's first real opponent of any sort. I don't know if there was really an angle there. You know, I I could have maybe tracked it down, but this is Glacier versus Big Bubba. It's not really worth a whole lot of my time. By November, he did have a match against Pat Tanaka on Worldwide, which might be worth seeking out. But just the ultimate example of just having some bad timing for your debut. I mean, the, the NWO thing, while it would make a lot of money, it would also consume a lot of oxygen in the room. And finally, we get a recap of DDP winning the Battle Bowl, which is nothing if not an upset, because the whole notion of you win the Battle Bowl, you get the world title shot at the Great American Bash the following month seems pretty simple. But when you have a stipulation like that, it often kind of boxes you into only having a few potential winners maybe takes the suspense out of it which can be fine I mean you can have a predictable winner of something like that and still make it good it's for the best though if you have a lot of possible guys who could win something I find that I enjoy the Royal Rumble the most when there's a wide variety of potential winners like this year's one, I, you know, I, I don't pay attention to betting odds anymore because they're spoilers and all that. But there was any one of at least six or seven guys who you could have made a case for winning the actual match here. Now, DDP, he gets it taken away from him for the foot on the floor thing, as I mentioned earlier. But it's the real lack of respect that is shown in having it taken away. And I'm not saying that DDP earned some sort of respect at this particular point in time. I mean, he was not there yet as a star in the ring. He It would take him another year in this Randy Savage feud. But the fact that you don't even get a member of the WCW executive committee to give him the bad news, it's just Gene Okerlund in the ring on Nitro telling him that no, they've decided to give the title shot to Lex Luger. I, I just think that kind of really made DDP look a bit like a chump there. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter because it did elevate him just a skosh at the very least. So there is that. But it kind of made me think of, you know, thank God we don't have Battle Bowl anymore because I think that concept was extremely flawed. But possibly a screwy way to book a Royal Rumble in the future where you could throw people off the scent by having a surprise winner but not necessarily have them have to main event Wrestlemania because that's that's the whole thing I mean you have 20 guys in the match who have no chance at all 
you're just sitting there like, okay, Kofi Kingston's going to be in the match, and he's going to do his ridiculous avoid elimination spot, which, by the way, uh, pardon my language here, but that is just totally fucked out. I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm just tired of that. Like, it's, it's the same bit year after year. I, I'm not saying that they should have Curtis Axel win the Royal Rumble or anything, but I'm just I'm just throwing it out there as a potential booking idea from somebody who is not very good with booking ideas that I think this is something worth exploring. We got men at work right now. No, not the band who saying who could it be now, but Mike Winner and Mark Starr taking on Harlem Heat. And I always forget about Men at Work's actual like outfits that they would wear to the ring. They're, they're really sort of like a walking prototype for the failed Steve Regal man's man gimmick with the flannel shirt and the hard hat. Although the hard hat is kind of making me think that they're trying out for some sort of Village People tribute band. When you think about it, though, the, the Village People, they really are like the wrestling stable of at least disco culture with the six guys all having separate and distinct gimmicks that you could fill in from existing guys in wrestling history and just sort of thinking about it. The, the cop... The cop has got to be the big boss man. That that one makes the most sense to me. Even though, yeah, I know it's a prison guard, but boss man did evolve into more of a cop. The Indian has got to be Strongbow, and here's why. Yeah, Wahoo was certainly better. Tatanka was even better. But remember, the guy portraying the Native American in the village people is probably not actually a Native American. So it's best that we get somebody who is also not actually a Native American to do it. And I don't think Strongbow would have to do any singing. He just had to kindly slowly move back and forth as part of the dance numbers. For construction, we could have either of these guys from Men at Work. They can they could be the construction worker with the little lightning bolt on the hat there. The cowboy, that one is pretty easy because you could pull almost any Texan in the history of wrestling who has had the cowboy gimmick and you know just had like a regular sort of mustache you could have Ron Bass really just about anybody and I'm thinking for the terrified private uh, Terry Daniels from 1984 circa Sergeant Slaughter Cobra Corps I feel like that would work pretty well there and then finally the leather daddy with the mustache that Dana Gould the comedian once called larger (laughs) He said, it is the size of Elvis's last belt. Uh, I think that the Leather Daddy gig has to go to 1985 edition Adrian Adonis before he converted it over into a much more in-your-face effeminate thing. So there's your wrestling village people roster. And they're taking on Harlem Heat, who are coming to the ring and are talking to the camera. And it's one of my great frustrations of this show is... In WCW, they would like to cut ca- cut promos to the camera, either going to the ring or you know come to the corner after they've won their match, and you can hear them say something into the camera. It's one of the charms of these shows, but Tony and Dusty just kind of keep talking over it, and you can't hear any of these guys, because men at work were doing the exact same thing. 
What I do like about Harlem Heat at this time is they have their original outfits, not the shameful ones where they had Colonel Parker bring them out in chains, which is like, what the hell were you thinking with that <laughs> when they pulled that stuff? But I'm talking about the one where they have the little shower curtain ring on their outfit. I never did introduce myself. Del Griffith, American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. I sell shower curtain rings. Best in the world. And yes, that's where they got the thing for their gear to kind of keep it all together. Tony lets us know that Doug Dillinger is guarding the doors to keep Savage out, so everybody should feel 100% safe because Doug Dillinger is on the case, and nothing bad has ever happened when Doug Dillinger is guarding the scene. I, I certainly feel more secure watching this program. I, I was afraid that Savage was going to break into my own house and do something to me here. <laughs> Because Dusty, he, he's got a much more entertaining way of putting it. What they have done is cuff the building. Instead of cuffing the macho man Randy Savage, they have put cuffs and padlocks on this building full of people once they got in right here to keep the macho man out. Savage has drove him to the edge and have went ahead and pushed him off. And I guarantee you, man, don't go away from your sets, though. As Tony said, he was scheduled here. And, I, and, and being what's in his mind, he could come down and appear right out of the ceiling. First of all, I reiterate my point from earlier about how maybe padlocking the building is not the greatest idea, considering that's probably a fire hazard and all. And it, also, at this point, WCW main eventers are not coming down from the ceiling. That would be another year before that would start to be commonplace. So he's just a little off on his timeline there. And yeah, there is an actual match going on here. Star is in, tries a suplex, it's blocked, and you get a Uranagi slam, side slam. This, this, this one is just really quick, and you probably know how it's going to end up. Booker T goes up top and hits the Harlem Hangover. Pretty cool-looking move for a guy that size. I'm not entirely into Booker T as a performer, and I don't know why it's kind of like the problem with edge for me a lot of people grew up in an era where edge was the top guy and i just never really saw it in going back and watching some of his stuff over time with booker t yes he did have some good stuff especially in 98 when he's in that tv title sort of picture with finley and the other guy when he had the best of seven series with the other guy. Don't really know who he is or what horrible things he might have gone on to do. But I kind of hold... Is it at all weird that I hold it against Booker T that he basically killed Rick Martel's career with basically injuring him twice in the same match to the point where he injures him and then they say, okay, we got to go home with this match. And then he injures him again. And we never get any more Rick Martel after that. A brief, let's say it was about a three, maybe four-month comeback for Martel as a babyface at WCW in 1998. It's one of those, like, just out-of-nowhere stories. And I don't know why I'm holding it against him. Maybe it's just my own grudges and whatnot. But speaking of grudges, I'm, I'm getting all kind of annoyed at Tony here because he just keeps plugging the pay-per-view non-stop the the match is going on and i'm trying to pay attention to what he says but also try to follow along with the match so 
it's it's really the the start of my annoyance with Tony. But with that being said, I can't criticize him too much because they should be plugging their pay-per-views more because that's where the money is. The money is in selling as many pay-per-view buys as you can. It's not calling the best possible match you can on WCW Saturday night. So I can kind of maybe see where he's coming from, despite my general annoyance about that. But that's why I like WCW Prime. And I think it's probably been a little too long since I've done one of those episodes. I'm going to have to pencil that in at some point, but at least before episode 60. And so I'm looking at my notes here, and my next note, and this is actually kind of a surprise for me, because... As I said, I was either on a plane or in the airport watching this. Is I just wrote the timestamp and Dusty says stuff. So let's see what that stuff is. Real quick, you ever been on one of them fights where you say, I'll meet y'all after school, and you say, yeah, let's go. And then about halfway in the evening, say, well, I'm not going to meet this guy after school. He got me talking to something I don't want to be at. If that's the case, if that's the case with the NFL versus WCW, we're going to find out only on pay-per-view the Great American Bank in Baltimore, Maryland. Why, yes, Dusty, I'm pretty sure that I have been in that type of situation with a fight coming after school and wondering if I should be doing it. But, yeah, I <laughs> again, during the replay, they're talking about the pay- upcoming pay-per-view and not what's going on there. But, hey, that's fine. Saturday night, attention hotline fans. I'm sure if you surf the Internet this past week, you've got to be aware of the rumor. I say rumor regarding the possible retirement of arguably the greatest star professional wrestling has ever known. This man has actually been involved in a myriad of careers over the years, and maybe, just maybe, he may want to move on to other things, greener pastures, as they say. Where would he go? What would he do? Well, I talked to this monster superstar just yesterday, and I've been talking about it all day. I'm going to have the real story for you on the WCW hotline right on up until midnight. Get the scoop you won't get on the Internet. Get the scoop you won't get anywhere else. Call the WCW hotline at 1-900-909-9900. Call right now. This is another fun WCW game to play watching one of the shows from this time period where Gene is plugging the 900 hotline, Scheme Gene, as it were, and makes a bold, outlandish claim such as one of the greatest stars in wrestling history is retiring. And, well, there's only... There's only three people that I nailed it down to that he could have possibly met, and it was Hogan, Bret Hart, and Bob Backlund. And I'm assuming that he means Hogan, and that's why they have the vignettes playing, sort of tease it like that. So I I don't know, really. But we get a different sort of promo now, which is really just an extended plug for Nitro as the theme song for WCW Monday Nitro plays one of the absolute best wrestling theme songs ever especially that part where you you get the little build to it in the first 25 seconds or so but when you get to like that 30 second mark and it really kicks in with and we get videos from nitro there flair cutting a promo you get the elizabeth the Leather Liz era, where she was uh, particularly uh, yummy, if I do say so. I don't mean to turn this into like a babe sort of show here, but I'm just commenting that she looks nice is all. There's various highlights of Monday Nitro over the last few months. You get 
Sting versus Scott Steiner coming up on the next Nitro League promote. So again, going with the babyface on babyface thing here. And it made me want to watch Nitro, despite the fact that it is twice as long now, going to two hours. A two-hour show is fine. Maybe I don't review them here, but it's perfectly fine to sit down and watch. They, they again, did not promote the Mahler, Mike Enos, versus Steve Dahl. I don't understand why they didn't do that. That's the thing you wanted to tune in for. But that Nitro theme is better than any Raw theme I can think of in the 25-year history of the show. I mean, what is it, like the 1998 one? It's just like, too much blood and not enough guts. Raw is war, blah, 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 blah. Like, all right, that, all right, we get it. All we need is a nice generic guitar riff there. We don't really, we don't, we're not really looking for something too complicated here. We don't need Marilyn Manson, all right? It, this is fine. I'll tell you who will always be my baby is Lord Stephen Regal. He's taking on Sting here and kind of a kind of an odd match to see because of how these two would face off at the next pay-per-view, the Great American Bash, and they would have a much longer match than we would have here. But it's still a real treat because if you recall back in one of my earlier episodes where I did a WCW Worldwide from 1994. It was when Regal was facing Ric Flair in the Marquess of Queensbury Challenge. How much I love just the way Regal walks to the ring is better than any professional wrestler in history. He's accompanied by Jeeves at this time. You have the Blue Bloods as a unit with Squire Dave Taylor, Earl Robert Eaton, Lord Stephen Regal, and then this guy, Jeeves, who was actually Gary Hedrick, who also happened to play the mascot of WCW, Wildcat Willie. But Regal, as I said then, and I'm just going to reiterate the point again, it's a whole playbook. He is the best in the world at walking to the ring. He doesn't need to do any of the choreographed Picayune Michigas of Finn Balor, where he has to you know, throw out his arms at the exact point in the music or any of that stuff. It's just a very simple playbook that, quite frankly, when I'm walking down the street, I like to emulate that sort of thing. I would walk around in college and I would I would just sort of do the same mannerisms as Regal would to just really amuse myself. Like, Here's here's the Regal playbook here. You got to have your hand one hand behind your back. I wouldn't necessarily do that quite as often. There was a guy I went to high school with who used to do that a lot. I just remember him as the guy who would constantly make Doctor Who references. You you remember somebody like that at least, you know, in American high schools. He would have one, the one hand behind his back and would have the other arm to sort of gesticulate to Jeeves or whoever then the next thing you have to do is he has to talk to Jeeves and he has to do it like he's instructing him to do something like he's really making an ardent point and then the next thing you have to do is you have to look really horrified to one side of fans and just kind of make a face like scrunch it up 
or whatever, and then repeat that, but look to the other side, perhaps point and say something to the fans about how, I don't know, uncouth they are there. And then you want to look back to the other side and make sort of a different sort of disgusted face. You know, kind of show your versatility. Here, Regal does a thing where he looks like he's about to vomit looking at one of the people here in Alabama. It's just magnificent stuff. Uh, Regal, like I said, there's nobody better than him. And part of it has to do with the snobbish gimmick or whatever. But look, when... Hunter Hearst Helmsley comes to the ring in 1995 and he's basically doing the flea market version of Lord Stephen Regal. He can't do it as well as Regal does because there's just nobody like him. The The crowd, for their part, and I had mentioned how sort of weird looking they were earlier, a lot of thumbs down people. So you're getting like the robotic worldwide style crowd here at WCW Saturday Night where the either thumbs up or thumbs down Actually, you don't get the thumbs up as much. You usually get, you know, just clap, applause, or something like that. But for, like, the heels, you just get the thumb, the generic thumbs down. So this almost seems like something off of WCW Worldwide. And as Sting makes his way to the ring, his hair is darkening ever so slightly by the day in 1996. It's a way to mark time throughout the year. And the face paint on Sting is getting a little lazy, I, I have to admit. I, Sting would change up his face paint when he was still stir, surfer Sting, and I never quite understood why he would change it. I, I'm kind of surprised that he never settled on one design that they could market and sell masks of, like they did when he eventually goes to the Crow thing. In fact, I bought a Crow mask at that WCW show that I went to in 1998. I Wish I still had that, even though there's no way I could wear it, one, in public, two, in private, or three, even, like, to the bathroom. Like, you just could not wear that thing at this point. But had he settled on one design as Surfer Sting, perhaps that's something they could have marketed for him. But, hey, you know, that's WCW for you. Tony Schiavone says that WCW pay-per-views are the place to be, so... Grab your drop there, place to be podcast at 2735 of this show. What's going to happen on WCW Pay-Per-View Spectacular? It is the place to be. And of course, on Sunday, June 16th, not too far away, in Baltimore in the arena, the Great American Bash. We're all going to get there early that weekend and have a great time in Baltimore. Well, we always do. You always have a good time. I guarantee you. And I'm always hanging around you because that's where all the pretty ladies hang around you. Okay, Lois, here we go. Dusty giving a shout-out there to Tony Schiavone's wife, Lois, whose name we know now from the What Happened When podcast. Test of Strength is offered by Regal up front, which seems like a kind of odd mistake by him, considering that Sting is a much bigger guy, more built, and he loses almost immediately, and Sting does that thing where he stomps on Regal's fingers, and Regal is walking around making just a horrified face and he turns back, he's kind of woozy somehow and Sting just sort of yells in his face like, Boo! And Regal is particularly horrified by this so you get a lot of shtick up front. Dusty, for his part, stays with the shtick and says mothership again so take a drink there. Get a botched cradle move 
up front. And Sting, I'm, I'm going to blame Sting for this one because I'm not going to blame Regal for screwing up that move. Uh, Regal goes to the eyes and starts getting control with forearms and knees and, of course, the European uppercut as well. I wonder if Regal was an active wrestler now in this gimmick, given Brexit and all that business, although that might actually be reversed at some point. I, I haven't been following it too closely, but I did see something about that. If Regal would change the name of it to a UK uppercut rather than a European uppercut. But Regal's offense, I, I enjoy his offense not quite to the level of his ring entrance, but he he's just a guy who knows what he's doing as a professional wrestler from soup to nuts. He, he just knows how, how a match should go. Uh, not so much here because they don't give them any sort of time here. Tony talks about some squabbles within the blue bloods of Regal, Taylor, and Eaton, and Eaton would kind of go off his own way and sort of fade into the sunset. Regal and Taylor would remain a unit for a much longer period of time. We get a weird abdominal stretch move. Uh, it, it doesn't look like a normal one. It's not even one I don't think where Gorilla Monsoon would complain that it was being held improperly or whatever, but it goes into a cradle for a two count, and Sting fires up with some clotheslines and a back body drop on Regal and goes to the corner, and what Regal does is he kind of jumps to the second rope like he's going to jump off it real quick, but he sort of stops and comes back, but then gets drop-kicked, which was kind of kind of a weird stop-start thing going on there. And Sting immediately goes for the Scorpion Deathlock, and this is actually our finish here. I I was really kind of shocked at how quickly this went, but it's a one-hour WCW Saturday night, so it is what it is. The Scorpion gets reversed into a cradle by Regal, but again, that cradle gets reversed, and Sting is on top for the one, two, three. And I'm left scratching my head here of, okay, all right, I understand that Sting is going to beat Regal. He would also beat him at the Bash in a match that literally lasted four times as long as this one, maybe even five times as long. I think that went 16 or 17 minutes. And the unfortunate thing about the Bash is the, the promo cut by Sting on Regal at the event where he basically calls him gay. It's not one that has aged well in retrospect. It's like, I'm going to straighten him out. I'm just making these subtle allusions and uh, have to admit I really don't care for that. Uh, this one is a bit of a head-scratcher here that you would throw these two guys out and give them so little time, but just looking, playing Mr. Brightside here, at least I got to see Steven Regal walk to the ring. New cruiserweight champ Dean Malenko to be challenged by second-generation great from Mexico, Rey Mysterio Jr., the son of Rey Mysterio Sr. Yeah. In the Great American Bash Control Center, Gene Okerlund manages to get two things wrong in about seven seconds there with Mysterio, who is actually billed from San Diego, although I guess you could make a case that, you know, he had wrestled in Mexico, and you could say he's from Mexico in that sense. But it's important to remember, despite the Ray Sr., Ray Jr. thing, Ray Sr. is actually his uncle. So he is the nephew of Rey Mysterio Sr. So do, do your research, Oakland. Why don't you take more falsehoods to the hotline? Before that, there was a 
clip of Kevin Sullivan beating on Mick Foley there to Rey Mysterio's music, of all things. So that should have been a regular segment on WCW Saturday night. Like, who is suing us now? And just show footage of them getting manhandled in a match or something like that. But, hey, you know, you, you could have done something else with the time, but, you know, you chose to do that, and that's fine. You know, the guy who... The guy who owns the promotion also owns the network. So, you know, whatever you want to do. It's just like the WWE Network. They could put on any sort of programming they want. Sure, if they want to put on Ride Along or whatever those shows, that's their that's their take. I, I just don't really have much interest in that. And we got the Barbarian coming out for his match. And this is supposed to be against Randy Savage. But they're saying that he's suspended. But they're also saying that Savage is you know, supposed to wrestle this match anyway. It was kind of confusing. But what Tony calls it is a standby match, and they don't know who the opponent is actually going to be because we got Doug Dillinger on the case trying to keep Randy Savage out of the arena to keep the former WWF star from hijacking the show because that's next week's angle. We can't have him doing that here. So the security is all set up here. But here's Randy Savage. He emerges through the crowd, which was certainly the in thing to do in late May 1996. Just come through the crowd and hop into the ring. And as Savage is there, we get a visit from the WCW Executive Committee member, Chip Burnham, who is an actual guy who has a rather interesting history and a connection of all things to Triple H. It was at a gym owner's convention a couple of years earlier, and Levesque, having trained under Killer Kowalski in New, New England, had a sort of a demo tape, almost like a reel, that he had willing to give out to whoever he could meet. And Burnham is actually one of the regional promoters for World Championship Wrestling. So he met up with him there and... Apparently, some of the guys in WCW were impressed with his work as terrorizing. So that's how they ended up bringing him in. So kind of an interesting story. But this actually kind of a sad back end to this as Burnham passed away in January of 2017 at the age of 61. So far too young. He worked in finance for much of the 1980s, both in Houston and in the Atlanta Area. He went to the University of Georgia for college before he joined World Championship Wrestling in 1988 as one of the first hires under the Turner regime. He was the first controller of WCW, which feels like really kind of a rough gig, but better to have it when Turner is coming in than 10 years later when things started to go sideways. And he also assumed the role, as I said, of a promoter, but he was a financial advisor at Raymond James, which is kind of almost sort of like a freelance sort of gig. His obituary kind of goes into a bunch of different things, like how he won his fantasy football league in 2014, which kind of left me scratching my head. I, I would have left that on the cutting room floor. Actually, put this in my obit. If whoever writes it is listening, I, I want it said that I won my XFL fantasy league in 2001 with a 7-3 and record. So uh, let, let that be one of my requests there. I also want bagpipes to be played at my funeral, but I want them to be playing uh, the Mr. Belvedere theme song. <laughs> All right, and, and enough silliness. So Burnham is there, 
and he is there to once again give another lecture to Randy Savage and lets him know that he's been suspended. You got something to say to me? Stand. Mr. Savage, as a member of the WCW Executive Committee. Oh, really? I am informing you there's a result of the actions taken by you at the Lethal Lottery that your behavior went way over the line. That was nothing. You are hereby indefinitely suspended from all future WCW televised matches. Insane Randy Savage is really awesome. It's not on the level of the Steve Austin rampage at the end of 1997 when he's nursing the neck injury and stunning everybody, but got to admit it's pretty close because the Savage character, even dating back to the WWF days, all the way back to the mid-80s. So we're talking a 10-year history here, just this wildly intense guy. So everything that he's doing kind of makes sense and is in line with what his character has been in the past. So he slaps Burnham and puts him down and gives the fans in Alabama there a bit of a treat as he hits him with the elbow that looked like one of those shoot elbows that Savage started throwing. Rather than protect the guy on the mat, he kind of lands a little bit differently than he would in his WWF time. So Burnham is just laid out there in the ring, and that also might be a show image this week of him just sort of laying there on the mat. And security comes in to try and grab Savage. I want to say that there's like a whole SWAT team of guys, four or five of them, all uniformed to try and bring the Macho Man into custody. And yet somehow he gets away through the crowd, like you see him punk at Money in the Bank. Now, how do you have that many police? <laughs> you can't get this is like total Keystone cops here, and is basically they are the WCW police force. So Savage gets away, he'll live another day. <laughs> it's a good thing because you gotta you need you need him there for Hogan to turn heel because it makes more of an impact if Hogan turns heel on Savage as a sort of receipt for what had happened years earlier in 1989. So it does seem that the whole suspension thing would sort of fade into the background as the NWO would take center stage, but it's a nice little time in history for Randy Savage, a little bit different from the rest of his career, but very much in line with everything his character had ever done. Twix with chewy caramel, milk chocolate, and that great cookie crunch. It's time out for Twix. And you! How many Twix does that make for you today? Like eight Twix? No. Hey, this clock bar is good. It's a Twix! They're all Twix! It was a setup! A setup, I tell you! And you've robbed it! You've all screwed me again! Now give me one! Give me a Twix! They're all gone. Back to wrap up this episode of WCW Saturday Night from May 25th, 1996. You got Gene Okerlund here, and he says that it's the breaking point with Savage and that something has got to give, but. As we would come to find out, nothing would really change going down the road here. So I'm going to leave it to the host, the real host of WCW Saturday Night, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, to properly close the show for us. 
Well, you can't condone it. On numerous occasions, I stood behind the Macho Man Randy Savage. In the great world of sports, you cannot condone hitting officials. You cannot condone anything that we had seen right here. And at this point in time, Macho Man Randy Savage, you need to go and look in the mirror and take a hard, cold look at where you're going, brother, because it's the wrong path. And I, for one, will not condone the Macho Man Randy Savage for what happened here. I have to admit, this show left me feeling a little flat. I always say that I like to pick shows where stuff happened, but as I said in the intro, I also like shows that are before the big thing that happened, that kind of set the stage, and this really didn't set the stage at all. It almost seems like, you know, the NWO was like turning on a dime for them, even though it ended up being at the right time. And that does it for that show, but... Right now, we have the dramatic return of YouTube Comment Theater. Looking through these comments, sometimes I forget the fact that it's not all hardcore fans who are commenting on these videos. Sometimes it's just a person who watched WCW in the 90s and never watched wrestling after the company went out of business. Those people are most certainly out there and number in probably the hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people and that kind of plays into the first comment here from hubert green booty man he looks a little bit like rutus the barber beefacac the zodiac the disciple and the butcher that's weird and one of the replies and the man with no name along with dizzy hogan and way too many more for me to type my fingers already hurt that's phil jr in reply to that I'd have to say that Beefcake's best WCW gimmick was probably the Booty Man. <laughs> although Zodiac was pretty creative, although that had been done in Stampede in 1987. But, uh, you know, uh, whatever. The Booty Man seemed to be fairly in line with his barber gimmick, or at least as close as they could have possibly gotten. I, at least I think with that. Tim Van Dahlen says, If you look at the TV commercials of Glacier, nobody other than Glacier is able to say that so much mysterious preparation in his introduction to a wrestling company eventually meant zero to none to his failed and meaningless career. True beginning of an epic fail. Yeah, it was kind of a long build-up there. They probably needed to knock off the intro vignettes after a while because it just kept going and going like the Energizer Bunny. But it always heartens me a little to know that Glacier still works on independent shows to this day in that gimmick. <laughs> Which kind of makes me laugh because this is over 20 years ago. It really makes me feel old to think about that. So why don't we just move on? Lil Man Mullins says, The Gambler was a terrible wrestler. Oh, well, I'm not going to hear any of that. We just had no less than Chris Jericho disprove that entire point there. Wise her gig, buddy, says, short episode. Guess the Braves had a game that night. Of course, I can't help myself from talking about that. If, if there's a baseball game on TBS that preempted the last hour of a wrestling show, I'm going to talk about it. That's why I'm here. Dustin Mira says, they need to start playing these on Saturday nights on the WWE Network at 6.05. That's actually a pretty good idea. The only problem with that is with the network being a global entity, what is 605 to one person is not 605 to another person 
1,000 plus miles away in another time zone. So if you look at it this way, it's 6.05 somewhere, so maybe they should start up the WCW network and just stream those shows around the clock. There's certainly plenty of C and D programming like the Prime, the Pro, and all that sort of stuff to kind of just fill everything in. I would probably actually subscribe to the WCW Network. That's that's how bad I am. And plus, if they did offer WCW Prime, I, I I would I would do it just for that. And oh, uh, he says. 1467 only viewed this video because they saw the gambler yes the gambler is actually the youtube image the thumbnail of this which youtube actually automatically chooses it gives you three choices and you can put a different thing in over that but it usually picks a picture that is pretty clear that is more appealing and it's not fuzzy in any sort of way. So yes, the picture is a little graphic that says WCW Saturday Night, the gambler, with him looking into the camera all wide-eyed and bug-eyed. And I think that was a pretty good choice. That does it for YouTube Comment Theater. I have lined up shows for the next several weeks and beyond, although I am a little paranoid about various shows disappearing from YouTube. A lot of my upcoming playlist is no longer there, but I've been able to fill in with other things that I'll be taking a look at down the road. But for next week, I'm going to look at a show from 1989, and I'm returning to that year yet again because it just feels like there's a lot of great stuff within that one year. And for the second time, I'm going to be looking at a WWF Superstars show from that month. Way back in the last show that I did before I joined the Pro Wrestling Only feed in episode 15, covered the June 3rd, 1989 show. This time it'll be June 24th, 1989. And this show, this lineup, is so unbelievably loaded. I have no idea how I'm going to keep this show under two hours. I've laughed my ass off just watching little bits and pieces of this show over the last couple of days. And honestly, I might watch it three times before I actually record this because here's just a sampling of what is on this show. We have the Brain Busters. We have Demolition. The debut of the Widowmaker, Barry Windham, returning to the WWF after nearly a four-year absence. King Duggan is in action. We get a Dusty Rhodes vignette where he is making poop jokes. The No Holds Barred music video. Jesse Ventura and Vince McMahon just bickering back and forth like crazy. They were just at each other's throats for much of that summer. And the Intercontinental Champion, Ravishing Rick Rude, gets a rude awakening of his own. God, this one is going to be so fun to do. So that does it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned to placetobenation.com for the continuing rollout of the greatest WWE wrestler ever as we are nearing number one. And I do have that podcast with Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters coming out. If it's not already out there right now, I expect it to be out in the next couple of days. I swear to you, I promise that is going to happen. 
But do tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Allentown.